Okay, we are going to continue with the with the presentation we were discussing the other day about the electrolytes. I made some changes here. I added some pathophysiology, okay, that will help you understand certain things that maybe you don't have still very clear, and it will take some years to have clear. Okay. If you go to the drive in the medicine nephrology, I added a PDF document. It's a book that the name is the the complete enchilada, I think, but it was written by a great nephrologist. Okay, and this nephrologist gives. A, it's not that I found it uh, illegally, and I shared. He shares in his website for free. If you buy, it's going to be very expensive, but he shares the PDF for free and gives great explanations about electrolytes and acid-base disorders. Very easy to understand, plain language. However, try not to get too entertained with that. Okay, you need to study many other things. If there is a point, a topic that you consider very difficult to understand, go read that briefly. Okay, but try not to get uh, too distracted. Okay, save it somewhere because you are going to need it for sure in the future. Okay? So, to prepare for the exam, uh, it's important to know something. Uh, for example, when you go to this book, to this PDF, the last chapter of the book is potassium. Okay? This nephrologist leaves potassium for the end, and he explains that because uh, the homeostasis of potassium and how potassium behaves in different conditions is very difficult because we have to put together so many different things and have in mind so many factors that takes a while okay, to, to actually grab the concepts. So when you study, try to go to steps. Okay? You're going to be given specific situations. If potassium is high, what will happen, for example, or why can be high, given something, not given five different things. Okay, because it's impossible in one minute. If I give you one hour to figure out, okay. But in one minute, it's impossible to put together so many different things. Okay, to try to, to come up with, a, with an answer that is correct. Well, so let's talk about potassium. Okay, potassium can be low or can be high. Okay, and we need to understand why. Okay, here we have some of the more specific uh, or general things about the hypokalemia, of course the definition when it's below 3.5, and that we have to be uh, aware okay, of the potassium levels because they may induce arrhythmias or abdomyolysis. This is the, or are the life-threatening complications that hypokalemia may have. Okay? People may have muscle weakness, may have different things, but uh, life-threatening things are when they affect the heart or when there is a widespread breakdown of muscle fibers. Now, what can produce hypokalemia? We have to remember that potassium, most of the potassium in the body, 99% is inside the cells. Okay, so what can produce this uh, low level? Very rarely, very rarely, uh, problems with the dietary intake. Okay. Uh, According to some people who study these topics, if we eat only a piece of fruit per day, we have enough potassium. Okay? The, 
the kidney is able to retain potassium, okay, to adjust for the low intake. So it actually has to be zero intake, almost zero intake, for us to have a hypokalemia for this. Now, if we find the potassium low in the blood, we have to think, is potassium going into the cells? We have too much potassium going into the cells, or are we losing it? For example, through the urine or through the GI tract. Okay, those are the only ways that potassium can go out of the blood. Okay, that is what we need to identify. Okay, so we are going to do different tests. For example, the urine potassium. If we are losing potassium through the urine, it's going to be elevated in the urine. If we are losing it through the GI tract, vomiting diarrhea, then it is going to be low in the urine. Okay, so we distinguish renal from non-renal losses by using the uh, urine. Like in sodium, we can do the 24-hour collection, but that's not something we do. Or we can do the potassium to creatinine ratio, okay, exactly as we uh, do other types of ratios, okay, to know what's going on. Now, we are going to see the diagram about the pathophysiology. Uh, generally, okay, the potassium loss is due to aldosterone excess. Okay, but we have to remember that magnesium is important to retain potassium. So if you see that the patient doesn't respond to normal treatment, consider is magnesium the problem? So we have to add magnesium. Okay, and always remember that loop diuretics will uh, produce a loss of potassium and also magnesium. Okay, so uh, most importantly, when the person is taking loop diuretics, magnesium has to come into our minds. It's difficult to assess the magnesium levels because magnesium is also an intracellular cation. So by looking at the serum levels of magnesium, we still don't know okay, if this is the problem. But when they are taking diuretics, loop diuretics more specifically, that could be the case. So here we have certain uh, explanations about the etiology that appear more developed or organized here and also appear in this diagram about the pathogenesis so you can see the relationships between the different things. Notice that here we have the cases, the rare cases of reduced intake, someone with anorexia nervosa or someone who has an alcohol use disorder or any other uh, problem in which they are simply not taking anything that contains potassium. Then we have the potassium moving into the cells. Okay, we have certain things that stimulate the sodium-potassium pump. Okay, for example, aldosterone, okay, uh, epinephrine, different uh, or medications that stimulate uh, beta-adrenergic beta receptors. Okay, any person with a high adrenergic state, for example, alcohol with withdrawal, or any stressful situation, shock, myocardial infarction. Uh, insulin also stimulates the sodium potassium pump. Okay, and there are uh, other causes, a uh, condition called hypocalemic periodic paralysis that is very rare. Okay, that may also uh, induce an intracellular shift of potassium. And simply we understand when we have a stimulation of the sodium potassium pump, you know, that there is an exchange uh, of sodium uh, and potassium. Okay, this is occurring, for example, in the kidney, we are going to have a greater, uh, or, or, or anywhere where it occurs, we are going to have greater amount of potassium into the cells and sodium going out of the cells. Okay, that is an action of epinephrine and also insulin. 
at and here we say insulinoma but any, any person that we administer insulin okay they are going to have an intracellular shift of potassium then we have the losses through the gi tract or renal tract okay for example diarrhea and vomiting notice the difference between diarrhea and vomiting this is very important uh, for your exam okay uh, in both cases okay we are going to be losing potassium okay. we are losing gi fluids that contain potassium okay notice that when a person has diarrhea they are going to develop acidosis okay and non-anion gap acidosis and in that case we are losing potassium we are losing uh, bicarbonate remember we reabsorb chloride in exchange for this bicarbonate that we are losing so we develop a hyperchloronic metabolic acidosis so we are losing alkaline fluids from the pancreatic secretions and the gi secretions now in the case of vomiting is something different okay in this case we are losing acids in the vomit so we are going to develop a metabolic alkalosis instead of an acidosis okay and there is a complex relationship here okay when people are vomiting or when they have diarrhea anytime we have a volume loss okay that hypovolemia is going to induce the renin angiotensin aldosterone system okay and this aldosterone is going to produce a renal potassium loss okay and that's why people when they have vomiting they also develop the hypokalemia now renal wasting okay anytime there is an increased delivery of sodium to the distal nephron sodium and chloride okay that will uh, induce the the loss of uh, potassium okay there is an increased aldosterone activity okay uh, for example when people use diuretics or have excess aldosterone in con syndrome okay in those cases we are going to see uh, an increase renal wasting of potassium so there we have um, the same etiology okay or and some others but here we have it more organized okay so you can create like vignettes okay specific situations and predict how you can find these conditions uh, in the clinical practice okay and also in clinical vignettes okay we have the decreased potassium intake as i said it was very rare okay here we have conditions in which there is a potassium shift into the cells the same conditions that we mentioned before okay renal potassium loss with metabolic acidosis okay where you have some uh, causes of uh, renal tubular acidosis and inhalation of different toxins glue sniffing okay and there we have the increased gastrointestinal lo uh, losses diarrhea laxatives okay these are with metabolic acidosis and then we have the once renal potassium loss with metabolic alkalosis in that case we have to consider if they have a normal or a high blood pressure okay notice that the elevated blood pressure occurs when there is a an increase in renin and aldosterone for example malignant hypertension a tumor producing renin or cases of renal artery stenosis that will lead to increase, increase renin and aldosterone and normal blood pressure or maybe even low in patients taking uh, diuretics okay or those who are vomiting 
they are volume depleted, okay, or cases of magnesium deficiency. Okay, now there are cases in which renin is low and aldosterone is elevated. In that case, we have adrenal adenoma, adrenal adenoma that is producing aldosterone and that makes a negative feedback on renin, so renin is going to be low. So here you apply the endocrinology homeostasis. The same happens in adrenal hyperplasia. It's producing excess aldosterone. And there are a couple of conditions in which both renin and aldosterone are low, okay? Cushing syndrome or ingestion of black licorice, okay, that uh, will produce renal potassium loss with metabolic alkalosis. So all these things are also found here so you understand the relationship. Notice that it's exactly the same but now in a diagram. Okay, how we can end up with hypokalemia. Okay, notice if you go here to the lower uh, right, increase entry of potassium into the cells or increase potassium secretion by the kidney, okay, or increase potassium excretion when we have, for example, polyuria, or decrease availability of potassium when there is a low intake. Okay, if you go, come to the upper part, you see the same causes, decrease intake, increase loss, that can be GI or renal, or increase intracellular shift. Okay, here we have beta-2 stimulation, we have high aldosterone, we have high insulin, alkalosis, okay, these four things here, beta-2 stimulation, aldosterone, insulin, alkalosis, okay, all these uh, conditions, well, I think this arrow here is not properly placed, okay, alkalosis will increase the entry into the cells, okay, we get hydrogen from the cells and potassium goes inside, so that arrow from alkalosis should go here to the increased entry, not the sodium potassium activity. Sodium potassium activity is increased by insulin, aldosterone, and beta-2 stimulation. Okay? And what can produce also an increase of potassium uptake by cells? For example, increased red blood cell production or refilling syndrome. What could be examples of that? Imagine someone with a chronic uh, iron deficiency anemia or megaloblastic anemia or folate deficiency anemia. Okay, or someone who has a starvation, malnutrition, anorexia nervosa, that then starts receiving nutrients again. Okay, the body starts making cells, faster red blood cells, for example, eh, after a treatment with intravenous iron, or folate, or B12. This making of new cells will get lots of potassium from the blood. So that will produce, or will reduce the potassium. Okay, refeeding syndrome, someone who's been on starvation, or anorexia nervosa for the same reason. Okay, now if we move to this left part, decrease intake, okay, diarrhea, vomiting, increase losses, and then we have the renal losses here. Notice the different uh, conditions that may increase the renal uh, losses, primary polydipsia, Primary polydipsia will lead to excessive polyuria and that will take potassium away, okay, that there is no time for reabsorption. People taking diuretics, 
okay, hypovolemia will induce activation of the renin angiotensin-aldosterone, tumors producing renin or renal artery stenosis, aldosterone-secreting tumors, all of this is going to increase the level of aldosterone and it's going to increase the renal potassium excretion. And then we have the steroids, congenital adrenal hyperplasia, Cushing syndrome, okay, and black glycobis that increase aldosterone uh, secretion. Okay, so if you use this diagram, for example, and you want to prepare for the exam, just focus on one little piece. In real life, life this is extremely complex because someone may be taking a diuretic and also be being asthmatic and having treatment with beta blockers and maybe they also have a they, I don't know, receive chemotherapy and when you have breakdown of the cells, potassium goes out. Okay, so what is uh, more important in that specific patient? They, they have factors that increase the potassium and factors that lower the potassium. Okay, so what is going to happen? Well, we have to analyze, we have to assess the patient and repeat the test and repeat and monitor and adjust, okay, the therapy. But in an exam, we're going to be tested on, on a single point. Okay, for example, can say, uh, for which of the following reasons uh, there is high hypokalemia in a person taking diuretics? Well, uh, diuretics uh, stimulate the, or for example, with diuretics, increase the secretion of potassium. Hypovolemia will lead to renin angiotensin aldosterone system activation, okay, and aldosterone will okay, increase the renal secretion of potassium. Or what produces the, the hypokalemia in someone with diarrhea or with vomiting? So you have here all this information, okay? In the case of the, the patient with diarrhea, what do you expect to find? Well, hyperchloremic metabolic acidosis. In the patient that is vomiting, the hypokalemia, and what else? Metabolic alkalosis. Okay, what will happen in a patient that has, uh, for example, hypokalemia and we administer a beta ag uh, agonist is going to get worse? Okay, so that's more or less how you have to prepare for this. Okay, anything that increases sodium potassium pump activity or the aldosterone levels okay, will contribute to this. So how we assess the patient, okay? How we assess the patient? Well, you have some steps, okay? You have a patient, you detect hypokalemia, okay? First of all, we check, okay, the urine potassium to creatinine ratio that can be either low or elevated. Okay, we have to analyze this also with the acid-base status to see what is the contribution of the acid-base status to this uh, hypokalemia, if there is one. Okay, if there is no problem with the acid base, okay, the first thing that we have to think is intracellular shift of potassium. Okay, it can be beta-adrenergic stimulation or hypokalemic periodic paralysis or insulin, at, uh, maybe uh, excess dose or a person that has a tumor producing insulin. Okay, if there is a metabolic acidosis in a patient with low potassium to creatinine ratio, 
Okay, that is someone that is probably losing the potassium okay, through the GI tract, diarrhea. Okay. Now, if the potassium in the urine is elevated, okay, more than 13, if they have a metabolic acidosis, okay, these are problems that occur, for example, distal renal tubular acidosis, proximal renal tubular acidosis, okay, that probably was treated uh, with sodium bicarbonate. Remember, I told you we weren't uh, focusing on this uh, renal tubular acidosis. Okay, that is not something that is objective for you. Okay, this typically produces, uh, together with diarrhea, are the two more common causes of non-anion gap metabolic acidosis. Okay, in one case, the potassium is low in the urine, in the other case, it is elevated. Now, notice that here is where we have most of the stuff. Hypokalemia, high potassium in the urine, and metabolic alkalosis. Okay, to distinguish or to get to a cause, a probable cause, okay, we are going to check the blood pressure. It's the next step. Can be low, can be high. Okay, if it's low, we are going to look for chloride in the urine. Maybe elevated, maybe low. Notice that it's low in persons who are losing chloride through other part of the body. In this case, through the mouth. Vomiting is going to lead to a low chloride in the urine. We are losing it through the, in the vomiting or nasogastric suctioning. Or remote use of diuretics. That's not something that we are interested now in distinguishing remote from current use of diuretics. Okay, but in the case of current use of diuretics, the chloride is elevated because that is the function of diuretics. Eliminate sodium chloride. So it's going to be found elevated in the urine. And there are a couple of uh, syndromes there that we are not interested now. Now, high aldosterone. Remember the importance of aldosterone for hypokalemia. Okay, in that case we should assess the renin to aldosterone ratio. Okay, the, when both renin and aldosterone are elevated, that is because the kidneys are not receiving uh, enough blood. Renal artery stenosis stimulates renin, and renin stimulates aldosterone. Or simply, there is a tumor producing renin, and renin stimulates aldosterone. If renin is low and aldosterone is elevated, now aldosterone is elevated because there is an adrenal hyperplasia or a tumor producing aldosterone okay, that will inhibit renin. Okay, in this case, you see that both are low. Okay, but the, there is a ratio okay, in which aldosterone is uh, uh, both are low, but the ratio of renin-aldosterone okay, is low. There is more aldosterone than renin. Okay, and that, notice that it says Cushing syndrome, apparent mineralocorticoid excess and intake of blood glycolysis. Okay, that, those are the steps that we follow. Okay, and uh, seeing this in an exam, for example, is simply trying to make sense of what you have in the description. Okay, what produces acidosis, what produces alkalosis. Okay, to try to get to the idea of what, what could be going on. 
Now, the clinical presentation uh, typically when there is hypokalemia has going to lead to muscle weakness. Okay, remember, can in more severe cases to rub the myelitis. And they may present different uh, cardiac uh, uh, abnormalities. Okay, the, uh, smooth muscle is also affected not only the skeletal muscle. So they may have uh, illness or constipation, decreased bowel sounds. Okay, this may also produce a nephrogenic diabetes insipidus. Patients may also have polyuria, polydipsia. And in cases of chronic hypokalemia, it can even produce tubular interstitial nephritis. Okay. Remember, in many cases, uh, this can be a transient intracellular shift that may be corrected properly by itself, okay, or can be sustained in cases of rare conditions that we mentioned before, genetic conditions or periodic hypokalemic paralysis, etc. More common is a transient intracellular shift because of medications or because of uh, some other causes. Okay, and there are some changes in the EKG that you have studied before. Okay, that depend on the severity. At the beginning, flattening of the T waves, then ST depressions, then T inversions and E waves. That appear at the end, this may not be seen at all. In the contrary to hyperkalemia, in hyperkalemia we have the big T waves, T waves here, they are flat. Now, how we manage the patients with hypokalemia? Okay, we prefer to give them oral potassium if they tolerate the oral intake. Okay. There are a couple of things. Uh, one of them is for prevention. For example, patients who are taking diuretics that we anticipate mild to moderate potassium loss. Okay, we can give 20 equivalents per day. Okay, oral potassium. And when they have established hypokalemia, Okay, we are going to give more, from 40 to 100 per day, simply to replenish, for a certain time to replenish the stores. Now, what, what happens when we have a severe hypokalemia, less than three? Okay, in that case, we have to be very aware of the potential complications, and we have to give IV potassium, and we can manage better. In the case of oral potassium, we don't control the absorption rate. Okay, if patients take the potassium at certain times with, fo with food or with no food, etc. The absorption uh, may be different. Okay, notice what is the rate? Up to 10 to 15 milli equivalents per hour in normal saline. Okay, notice that if we mix the potassium with dextrose, dextrose will stimulate insulin release. And what will happen? We are going to worsen the problem. Okay, these are the specific things that we have to be aware of. Okay, what is better to mix the, the potassium with? Okay, in this case, don't use dextrose. And this rate is from 10 to 15. Notice that if you need to put more, okay, and up to 20, we don't put more than that. That should be through a central line. Okay, now, what if the patient has a metabolic acidosis? Well, Guidelines tell us that we need to correct the potassium, okay, before alkali administration, okay, because if we correct the acid doses first, remember we are going to make the situation worse. Okay, so those are things that you should know simply by 
knowing what happens when a patient has, for example, a diabetic ketoacidosis. Well, there we have some, this is taken exactly as it is from the current okay, consultation. Simply when we don't understand, when it doesn't respond, it's persistent. Okay, when that is an, a problem like hyperaldosteronism or hypokalemic periodic paralysis. Okay, and if they have a symptomatic or severe hypokalemia, okay, less than 2.5, okay, especially if they have cardiac problems. Now, talking about severe uh, things, I was uh, listening, uh, I, I, I'm following very closely this guy, this nephrologist, the one that, that wrote that book. And I was listening yesterday, I think, and they were discussing about the correction of hyponatremia. Yeah, remember the guidelines tell, tell you, or tell us, that acute hyponatremia can be corrected without any problem immediately, uh, certain that the patient needs, or that even a patient with chronic hyponatremia, if they have severe symptoms, we should also correct them rapidly. And the people in the podcast uh, asked the nephrologist, uh, how would you explain this? Uh, how would we apply this in the, in the clinical practice? How do we correct rapidly the acute? How do we correct rapidly the chronic with severe symptoms? And he made a stop and said, everyone is corrected slowly. And why? But why the guidelines? I don't care what the guidelines say. They try to simplify therapy too much. Okay, everyone is going to be corrected slowly because when they say acute, when they say less than 48 hours, how do I know that it's really less than 48 hours? And when I see a patient with severe symptoms, what is severe? What is the definition of severe? Maybe what is severe for me is not severe for you. Okay, so everyone is going to be corrected slowly. And if the guidelines say no more than 12 per day, I only do six. Okay, so I have a margin. If I go, if I correct too much, I will never pass the 12 per day. Okay, so these are things that you are going to be learning, of course, when you go, when you are practicing in a place with people who have experience okay, with this. Of course, for exams, you simply follow what is written okay, in those guidelines. And he recommended uh, trying to follow the guidelines of the European Endocrinology Society. And he says that, that those are the better ones, the ones that are more detailed and more specific for different situations. Okay, so now let's talk about hyperkalemia. And this is like when you study hyper or hypothyroidism, that you, you study one properly, you know the other one, because it's almost the contrary, almost, not in every detail, but there are many things that apply if you simply reverse them. Okay, here we have a situation in which there is an increased potassium. It's important to consider that sometimes there is something that is called pseudo-hyperkalemia. For example, when you 
tie the tourniquet very strongly or leave it there for a very long time or when we draw the blood too fast or when there is a, a wrong manipulation of the sample, centrifugation, etc. Okay, hemolysis that may occur may, may lead to spill of potassium from the red blood cells in the sample. Okay, but the patient doesn't have any issue. So we have to rule out okay, hyper, uh, pseudo hyperkalemia. Okay, we have to check the medications that the patients are taking. Okay, like AC inhibitors, ARBs, potassium sparing diuretics. Okay, mostly uh, or more commonly, if they have also kidney dysfunction. Okay, we may find hyperkalemia. There are some causes of hyperkalemia that we can simply uh, address, like by simply stopping the medications or changing the medications. Okay, now we tend to rely a lot on the EKG, these peak to waves, these things that we learn. That is not common at all. Okay, people may have a totally normal EKG despite having very important uh, or life-threatening hyperkalemia. Um, yeah, so the hyperkalemia is, uh, is not a, a very common uh, unless there is a really bad manipulation. Okay, and hyperkalemia is something that will occur more common in people who have also other conditions. Okay, if we eat too many, uh, lots of food that contain potassium, okay, we may have a transient hyperkalemia, but all that potassium is going to move into the cells, and the kidneys are going to eliminate any, any, any excess. Okay, so homeostasis works very well to prevent hyperkalemia. And we have to consider two conditions, transient hyperkalemia or persistent. Okay. In, Many cases, our patients are going to have a transient problem, okay, as a result of medications or some or something else, okay. But we have to be uh, study, and that's sometimes complicated when they have a persistent hyperkalemia. That sometimes we don't understand the cause. Okay, typically persistent hyperkalemia is associated with renal problems or impaired renal excretion. Okay, notice that here we have the contrary to what we said in hypokalemia. Now aldosterone is low. Okay, either the secretion of the, or the action of aldosterone. Okay, or there can be an impaired delivery of sodium and water to the distal nephron. Okay, or simply acute kidney injury, chronic kidney disease leading to elevation of potassium. Okay, transient typically is because of a shift, okay, from the cells into the extracellular compartment. Cells break down, tumor lysis, like in people receiving chemotherapy, for example, or simply spontaneous necrosis of a, a part of the tumor, massive hemolysis, trauma, or simply from metabolic acidosis, okay, in exchange for hydrogen. So that's our differential, okay, depending on what the patient has in the history or the reason why the patient is in the ER, etc. Okay, so we have exactly the same thing. Okay, we have a breakdown of the different things that can produce hyperkalemia. Okay, many, many, many things. Here we have the organized etiology, and we have the diagram. Okay, notice that you have there 
different reasons for pseudo hyperkalemia. Okay, and what do we do to confirm that the patient actually has hyperkalemia or this is simply a pseudo hyperkalemia? First of all, if we have to be suspicious, if our patient is perfectly fine, person who came for a routine annual physical exam and doesn't have any abnormality, doesn't have any complaints, the EKG is normal, okay, so doesn't match the, the clinical presentation with the values, okay, we have to simply confirm that, okay, by uh, sending blood, with a whole blood sample that is not, not centrifuged to the lab. Okay, if we see many cells, for example, thrombocytosis, leukocytosis, people with leukemia, for example, and there is a lot of hemolysis, probably that's the reason. Okay, tissue breakdown, okay, it's going to lead to hyperkalemia, hyperglycemia, okay, even if there is a, a reduction in the total body potassium, okay, as a result of insulin deficiency and hyperosmolarity. How a hyperosmolarity can produce hyperkalemia? Remember, we have excess osmols in the extracellular fluid. Water is going to go from the cells to the extracellular compartment and it's going to drag potassium with it. Okay, so it's dragging the potassium out. Okay, acidosis. Remember, there is an exchange for hydrogen. How much? Okay. Serum potassium increases 0.7 milliequivalents per every decrease in the in 0.1 units of pH. That's something that you have to calculate, okay, because once we treat the patients, you don't have to calculate in the test. But in the clinical practice, if your patient has a pH of 7.2 and you want to put it in 7.4, you know how it's going to be the change in potassium. Okay, now it's going to decrease by the same amount. Okay, and that's how in clinical practice people calculate how much potassium they have to administer to the patients depending on the changes that are predicted in the pH. Well, acute kidney, there is a problem with the excretion. Okay, the kidney is simply not working, so potassium is going to increase. There is no time for the kidney to adapt to the new situation not going to be frequent in the chronic kidney disease in which there are many adaptive mechanisms. Okay, in the chronic kidney disease, the GFR has to be very low okay, for, for the potassium to go up. Okay, the rest of the nephrons will excrete the excess potassium that the nephrons that are not working okay, are not uh, eliminating. Now, conditions that produce hypovolemia or low effective circulating volume, okay, can be cirrhosis, hypovolemia, heart failure, third spacing. Okay, remember the kidneys are going to receive little amount of uh, blood. And for a reason similar to the AKI, okay, the potassium excretion is going to be impaired. Now, aldosterone reduced, for example, people with Addison disease, no aldosterone or any condition that leads to resistance to aldosterone action, okay, obstruction, interstitial kidney disease, genetic disorders. And then you have the effects of some medications. Okay, ACE inhibitors, ARBs, and NSAIDs decrease the release of aldosterone. 
okay, spironolactone, ipleronone, okay, they are antagonists of aldosterone. Amyloride, triantoline, trimetoprim, they block sodium channels. Okay, and then we have the non-selective beta blockers. Okay, for hypokalemia, we said that beta-2 stimulation, okay, are, uh, produces hypokalemia. Notice that here beta blockers are the ones that may produce hyperkalemia, but it's more specific of the non-selective beta blockers. Okay, and this produces a mild hyperkalemia. Okay, heparin also inhibits the synthesis of aldosterone. Okay, and cyclosporin, tacrolimus, they impair the sodium delivery to the distal nephron. There's a different mechanisms by which medications okay, impair the exclusion of potassium. And that you have here organized. Okay, we're not going to uh, repeat the same thing. You have the pseudo-hyperkalemia, chift, okay, kidney diseases, low aldosterone medications, excessive intake of, potas of potassium. Okay, as we said for hypokalemia, that is not very common, the body adapts, but if the patient has um, chronic kidney disease, end-stage renal disease, of course, that is going to be more often seen in those patients. So the same thing placed in a diagram, okay? Increase intake, increases the availability. And then we have in the center conditions that decrease the renal exclusion or to the right things that decrease the intracellular shift so that allow more potassium to be out of the cells and into the blood. Cell lysis, tumor lysis syndrome for example, hemolysis, increase osmolality, remember these uh, water moving out, drags potassium, beta-2 inhibitors, alpha-1 stimulation, okay, decreases the sodium potassium uh, activity, okay, the same thing for digoxin, low aldosterone, low insulin, all these things will decrease the sodium potassium pump activity. And what about the decreased renal exclusion? Well, hypovolemia, okay? Any condition, acute kidney injury, chronic kidney disease, uh, congestive heart failure, there is going to be a low GFR with retention of potassium or a decreased arterial blood volume, effective arterial blood volume that decreases the delivery of sodium chloride, okay, to the, to the distal nephron. In, that, in those cases, for example, you're going to find a low urine sodium. Notice that this matches with what we studied for a pre-renal AKI. Okay, and then we have the effects of some medications, okay, and also adrenal insufficiency, low aldosterone, diabetic nephropathy and sets, increase decrease, okay, the collecting duct potassium secretion. Okay, if we don't secrete, it stays in the blood. So, hyperkalemia as a result of that. Now, in the case of hyperkalemia, um, they are also going to have muscle weakness and cardiac conduction abnormalities. These are going to be different from the ones in hyperkalemia. 
Okay, the manifestations are going to depend on how acutely, how fast this develops, and of course the level, and electrocardiographic changes, if we see them, they are going to have a progression, and they are going to depend on the potassium levels. Okay, typically the manifestations appear when potassium is above 7. Okay, also we may see the manifestations of metabolic acidosis. Okay, that occurs in this case due to probably with the secretion of ammonia. Remember the, what we mentioned at the beginning, EKG is unreliable. Okay, only acute cases, very acute cases that there is no adaptation of any type. We can see the classic picking of the T waves, the ST depression, widening of the PR and QRS. Okay, they may enter into a ventricular fibrillation, a systole. And I put this here so you see the different EKG manifestations, okay, in hypokalemia and hyperkalemia. Okay, probably you have seen this before, so just for you to refresh. Notice that it divides the potassium into mild, moderate, and severe. Okay, that you can see the most important or more severe manifestations there. Now, what is the management? Well, first of all, rule out that this is not pseudo hyperkalemia. Okay, more importantly, if your patient is fine. Okay, if you have a patient that has all the clinical uh, risk factors or clinical presentation of a hyperkalemia or a hypokalemia, or in this case hyperkalemia, we are not going to send any other sample to the lab. Okay, of course, try to uh, remove anything that can be removed or changed, any exogenous source, medications. Okay, we have to correct okay, the uh, volume depletion if there is one. We have to correct the metabolic acidosis. Now, if there is a, a, an emergency, Okay, cardiac toxicity, muscle weakness, or the potassium is too high. Okay, we have to prevent uh, life-threatening problems in the, in, the, in the heart, the arrhythmias. Okay, we have to stabilize the myocardium and prevent further arrhythmia. For that, we use calcium gluconate. Okay, but calcium gluconate acts very well, okay, to prevent arrhythmia, stabilize the heart, but then we have to do something. Okay, we have to continue with therapies that will shift the potassium into the cells. For example, insulin, beta agonists. Notice that the action of these medications start 10 to 15 minutes after we administer them. So in the meanwhile, we have to cover the patient with calcium gluconate. Okay, but the action of these medications lasts only one to two hours. So we have to do something else. Okay, we have to use therapies that increase the potassium excretion. Okay, and of course, if there is a metabolic acidosis, correct the metabolic acidosis. Using alkali therapies, but we're going to talk more about that in the following presentation. Now, what can we use to eliminate potassium from the body? Look, diuretics, they are great to increase uh, excretion of potassium. And there are some potassium binding agents. Okay, you probably have heard about these before. Patigomer, sodium, zirconium. 
Okay. And they were very well in chronic hyperkalemia, but in acute. Okay. There are simply no studies. Maybe we could in the meanwhile together with the other things, but now notice these notes here. Okay, this pathogen is effective in people with hyperkalemia and chronic kidney disease or heart failure. Okay, that are taking uh, renin and detention aldosterone inhibitors. But there is another sodium polystyrene, kyxalate, okay, that uh, its efficacy and safety are in question. Okay, there are cases that have developed colonic necrosis, obstruction, bowel obstruction, okay, so they are contraindicated. Okay, people after surgery, illness, or anyone at risk of colonic necrosis, people with CD, for example. And in some cases, uh, the treatment is simply hemodialysis. Okay, we can wait for the medications to act, or we can wait for the potassium binding agents to do their job. Okay, if the patient have oliguria, okay, if the patient have a severe a acute or chronic kidney injury, okay, and we know that these uh, medications are not going to do much, so the kidneys are simply not working, how are we going to eliminate the potassium? We have to remove it from the blood. And when the referral admission is uh, similar, okay, there is a problem with the kidney and reduced potassium excretion. Simply the nephrologist is the one who has to tell us. Okay, transplant specialist. Okay, and meet when there is a severe hyperkalemia, more than six, or any degree of hyperkalemia that has EKG changes or other conditions that may worsen the potassium levels. Okay, tumorolysis, rhabdomyolysis, metabolic acidosis. So, don't get too crazy with the pathophysiology, neither for the pathophysiology or for the medicine. For the medicine, not at all. Okay? For the medicine, the, the treatment is simply try to make sense of the steps. Patient has uh, potassium in 6.8, and there are picked two ways. What are you going to do? You have to do, put calcium gluconate because if you start with the with the insulin or beta agonists, okay, there are 15 minutes in which the potassium may increase even more, and we lose the patient. If you start with the IV glucose, calcium gluconate, then insulin beta agonists. If they have acidosis, well, uh, we use alkali therapy. Okay, and then we have to give a therapy that eliminates the excess potassium from the body, the diuretics most typically. Chronic cases, you may even try to reduce the level of potassium using these uh, potassium binding agents. And if the patient, you give calcium gluconate and you give uh, insulin, beta agonist, and you see that the potassium is still high, well, this person needs dialysis. Okay? This person needs dialysis. Okay, the same thing for the rest of the staff.
for the part of Israel, it's not going to be bad. Okay? It's not going to be bad at all. They did very well in the quiz, so they're going to do well in the exam. Okay? Let's have a break, okay, uh, until 2.05, okay? Let's move to the acid base part, or part of it. So, again, for purposes of exams, uh, just try to practice identifying cases, okay? If the patient has acidosis, alkalosis, and then if there is any step that you have to do to clarify more, okay, what do you think? What could be the etiology? Okay, and then the management. Uh, we are going to try to simplify as much as possible. Okay, there you have the basics in physiology. Okay, we have there the relationship between the hydrogen concentration and the pH of the blood. Okay, and we have the Henderson-Hassel uh, bulk equation that has been used a lot to try to explain the changes in the pH, the compensation, etc. It's not perfect. There are some little gaps there that are uh, difficult to explain using that equation. Notice in the blood, we normally, if we want to have a pH of 7.4, we should have a concentration of hydrogen of 40 nanomoles. Okay, an increase in hydrogen will drop the pH. And the contrary, if we have less hydrogen, uh, we are going to have a higher pH. Okay, this equation. Notice that it has in the numerator the bicarbonate, and in the denominator has the uh, CO2, the pressure of CO2 in the blood. Okay, any increase in bicarbonate in the numerator, an increase in bicarbonate will produce alkalosis, and if it decreases, will lead to acidosis. And with the CO2, okay, it's the contrary. If we have an increase, there is going to be acidosis and a decrease is going to produce alkalosis. Okay, when you look at the uh, chemical equation here, down in the, in the bottom of the slide, okay, you may realize that, for example, if we have a drop in bicarbonate, there is going to be a lot of hydrogen, okay, that is going to be free, okay, decreasing the, the pH of the blood. And if we have an increase in hydrogen, that is going to bind to bicarbonate, consuming the bicarbonate. So the pH is going to drop as well. Okay, we are going to study more the things that have to do with the kidney. Okay, because the CO2 stuff belongs to the respiratory alkalosis or acidosis. Okay, retention of CO2 will lead to acidosis, respiratory in this case, by shifting the equation to the left, okay, towards the formation of hydrogen and a drop in CO2, excessive ventilation, for example, hyperventilation, will move the equation towards the right, okay, leading to respiratory alkalosis. It's a bit more complex than that, okay, that's why this uh, equation is not perfect to explain that.
And here we have the classic findings in different uh, acidosis, in different acid-based disorders, respiratory or metabolic. Notice that the respiratory problems, you have them divided into acute and chronic. Okay, in every case, you are going to have, a, for example, an increase in the CO2 in acute respiratory and in chronic respiratory uh, acidosis. Of course, in the acute, it's going to be it works, okay, and there is a compensatory response. There is an increase in bicarbonate. The kidneys, proximal tubule, retains or forms new bicarbonate. Now, how do we differentiate if the problem is acute or chronic? Okay, notice that there is a magnitude of compensation. There is an expected magnitude of compensation. Okay, for simple respiratory or, or metabolic disorders, there is going to be an increase in one milliequivalent of bicarbonate, okay, per every increase in 10, okay, in the pressure of CO2. That means the kidney still is not working at maximal capacity, okay, only one milliequivalent of bicarb per every 10 CO2. Okay, if we see more than that, 3.5. Okay, then we say it's a chronic okay, respiratory acidosis. Someone with COPD for a long time, for example. And in the uh, respiratory alkalosis, something similar happens. Okay, the acute okay, is going to present with low CO2, exactly as the chronic. Both are going to have a low bicarb. Kidneys are now eliminating the excess alkali from the body. But it's going to be different in the acute and in the chronic. In this case, the proportion is 2 bicarbs per 10 units of decrease in the CO2 in the acute, or 5 okay, per 10, uh, that the 10 units that the CO2 decreases. Now, what about the metabolic acidosis, metabolic alkalosis? Metabolic acidosis, we are typically going to have low bicarb and increase by carbon in the case of alkalosis. Notice that the CO2 goes down when there is acidosis because we ventilate more to eliminate acids. Okay. And it's going to go up, okay, trying to compensate for the excess amount of alkaline substances. Okay, so they are both in the trying to compensate the lungs. That's very difficult. Hypoventilation is not a good idea. Can lead to hypoxemia and that's not good for the body. Okay, and there is also a magnitude that is expected. Okay, for example, in metabolic acidosis, we expect the CO2 to go down by 1.3 units per every one milliequivalent of bicarbonate that is reduced. Now, we, uh, in the clinical practice, okay, sometimes we use certain rules that makes us not waste time, okay, to be calculating things or using calculators, etc. So typically, for example, if a patient has a pH of 7.30, okay, the CO2 should be around that number, okay? That tells us that there is an adequate compensation. So you ha have a person that has the pH in 7.30. 
and the CO2 is in 7.40, sorry, in 40, that's not what should happen, okay? Okay, the CO2 the, should be around the values of the last two digits of the pH. 7.21, the CO2 should be around 21, 22, 23, 20, 19, okay, like dancing around that, those numbers. It's like a rule of thumb that we typically use. Sometimes we have to calculate, okay, use a formula. There's a formula that is called the Winters formula. I put it in one of the notes there. I think it's below this slide in the notes because that's used more for the respiratory uh, problems. Now, what is the step-by-step -step analysis? First of all, we look at the pH. But notice that I put a note here, an asterisk. An asterisk is gonna be very important, okay? First of all, we look at the pH to decide if the person has acidemia or alkalemia. Remember, the value of the pH doesn't tell us there is acidosis or alkalosis. That's something that is occurring in the blood. It's acidemia or alkalemia. Okay, acidemia may be due to acidosis. That is the process okay, that lowers the pH of the blood. Okay, it's a physiologic process or a pathophysiologic process. So we decide acidemia, alkalemia, then we look at the bicarb, okay, to see if this matches the, or explains that uh, the pH, okay, typically if it's low, it's a metabolic acidosis, if it's elevated, as a metabolic alkalosis, okay. Then we look at the, uh, since we are looking at more metabolic problems rather than respiratory, we are not including here the, the CO2, but we know that there should be a respiratory compensation, and that's when you use the Winter's formula okay, that you have here. Notice that we have to look at expected CO2. That's, you have the Winter's formula. I didn't want to put it in the slide so, because there were many things. Okay? If you calculate that, okay, you are going to see if there is an expected compensation by the level of CO2. Okay, to say compensated or non-compensated. I'm not going to go into there now. Then we have to calculate the anion gap. Okay, typically the normal range is 12. The normal value is 12, but if there is a range from 4 to 12, okay, when we have a more than 12, we say there is an increased anion gap. Okay, and the asterisk tells you always calculate the anion gap. Okay, because when there are mixed disorders, we may have a normal or in range uh, pH, and we may have an anion gap. Because if someone has a mixed metabolic acidosis with metabolic alkalosis, okay, the pH may be normal. And if we don't calculate the anion gap, we are not going to detect that there is a problem. Okay, we typically use sodium minus bicarbonate plus chloride. In some countries, they use also the potassium. For example, in Europe, they use potassium. So we have to increase the, the normal by four, okay, because we are adding the potassium there. Now, also we have to 
look at the albumin levels. Okay, and sometimes if there is hypoalbuminemia, okay, we have to consider that. We have to calculate the correction for albumin. The anion gap normally decreases 2.5 per every gram, okay, that albumin decreases. Remember, uh, the, the albumin is a non-measured anion, okay, when we do the ABGs, when we do these tests, we don't have albumin there that we can add okay, as another anion. Now, after correcting for albumin and doing our mental stretching here, we have to calculate something that is called the delta gap. Okay, what is that? That is the difference between the anion gap, the change in anion gap, okay, and the change in bicarbonate, simply to see if there is a mixed anion gap or a non-anion gap metabolic acidosis. Okay? It is easy to interpret the acid-base disorders when they are simple acid-base disorders, but when there is a combination of different etiologies, okay, it's very hard to assess. Okay? So we uh, calculate the or we, this delta gap is the corrected anion gap, okay? and we take no, sorry, this is the, the, the one for albumin. What is this doing here? Hmm, I think I made a mistake here. Hmm. I think I made a mistake here with the formula. I have to figure this, okay, but no, I didn't even put it there. Well, since you don't have to use this at all, okay, I'm going to correct it, I'm going to upload it later, okay, but simply we have to know if this is a simple disorder or a mixed disorder, okay, and then we may uh, evaluate the magnitude of the compensation if the, if the compensation is adequate. Okay, using that Winters formula. And notice that there is a sixth step. Okay, are the clinical signs compatible with what we found out here? Okay. And always calculate the anion gap. Okay. Even if everything looks normal. Okay, because sometimes we, we don't treat uh, lab tests. Okay, lab tests are simply a picture of something that was going on when we drew the blood that doesn't tell us how the patient is doing now. Okay, there are things that correct by themselves simply when we correct the volume status of the patient, okay, when we remove certain medications. So we have to make sure that everything makes sense before giving any type of treatment and repeat the tests as many times as necessary. So for metabolic acidosis, uh, we are going to find a picture of low bicarbonate, okay, maybe because of excessive loss okay, of bicarbonate, or simply because of the addition of organic acids, as it happens in ketoacidosis, lactic acidosis. Okay, an increase in acids or loss of bicarbonate will lead to this. And it's classified into anion gap or non-anion gap. 
Okay, there you have the classic examples of uh, anion gap metabolic acidosis, and these are the ones that produce the largest anion gaps, lactic acidosis, ketoacidosis, and poisonous alcohols, different toxins like methanol ingestion, for example. And when we have a person with normal anion gap, then the most common cause is diarrhea, okay, or what we mentioned in part of that are the renal tubular acidosis, not objective for you. And in many cases, the symptoms are going to depend on the cause, diabetes, or ingestion of a poison, or shock, septic shock, for example, where the presentation is going to be different. We may find the, uh, the metabolic acidosis in many different clinical settings. Okay, and also we may see this compensatory uh, hyperventilation, okay, in mild, moderate uh, cases, or the more severe Kussmaul ventilation or breathing, deep, regular, sighing ventilation in cases of more severe metabolic acidosis. Okay, so there you have the classic findings, low pH, okay, low bicarb, and low CO2, unless there is another respiratory problem added someone has a mixture uh, metabolic acidosis and they also have any condition that induces hyperventilation like for example opiate overdose okay that will lead to hyperventilation and then we are going to have a mixture of metabolic acidosis and respiratory acidosis making it worse okay calculating the anion gap we are going to see the Different, or we start our differential diagnosis. We may see hyperkalemia, okay, because of this exchange. If the patient is not eliminating this excess potassium in the urine, okay, potassium is going to be elevated in the blood. So when we look at the anion gap, okay, there are things that, or types of acidosis that present with a decrease or or we increase our normal anion gap. Okay, remember hypoalbuminemia is gonna produce a decrease anion gap, that's why we have to correct for albumin. But also adding some uh, cations, for example, okay, multiple myeloma, which we have excess antibodies okay, in the blood. There is also bromide intoxication. I don't know many people who have had a bromide intoxication, but it appears in the books. Increase a uh, gap, you have the classic uh, mud piles. I was uh, hearing that the, the, the one that is more in use now is the is gold mark, I think. Gold mark, something like that. But it's more or less the same. The O is uh, oxyproline, which is a, a metabolic byproduct of paracetamol. Okay, in mod piles we have the P for paracetamol. Okay, the gold marks has the O that is oxyproline. That is actually the, the compound that produces the, that increases the anion gap. Okay, so it can be metabolic anions like in ketoacidosis or uh, poisonous alcohols, lactic acidosis, advanced stages of chronic kidney disease, starvation, ketoacidosis. Okay, also chemicals or drugs. Okay, salicylate, methanol that pre produces formic acid, ethylene glycol producing oxalic acid, oxoproline, that is the O, 
I was for the pea in mud piles. And then we have the normal and end up diarrhea, okay, people recovering from diabetic ketoacidosis, okay, different things that lead to loss of bicarbonate, like ileostomy, pancreatic fluid loss, medications, carbonic anhydrase inhibitors. Okay, then we have a bicarbonate or chloride and chloride retention, renal tubular acidosis, or administration of uh, hydrochloric acid or uh, ammonium chloride. Okay, for example, in some cases of parenteral nutrition. Now let's take a look at lactic acidosis. Okay, lactic acidosis, besides diabetic ketoacidosis, is common, very common in the clinical practice. If you are working, if you have to work in the ICU or in any kind of emergency service, you are likely to find people with lactic acidosis. Okay, lactate is a compound that is formed after or at the end of the glycolysis. Okay, lactate may take different uh, pathways. Okay, if there is enough oxygen, okay, it's going to be converted to pyruvate, and pyruvate is going to enter the Krebs cycle in the mitochondria. But if there is no oxygen, lactate is going to be uh, converted to lactic acid. Okay, lactate may be taken by the liver and converted back to glucose in the gluconeogenesis. But sometimes there is no time for all of this when there is a very rapid accumulation of lactate as a result of the mitochondria not being working, maybe because there is no oxygen, or maybe because they have a problem, any kind of internal issues in the mitochondria. Okay, so ischemia, for example, is going to produce a lactic acidosis as a result of no delivery of oxygen to the mitochondria. So lactic acidosis is divided in two types, the type A and the type B. Okay, notice that the type A is the hypoxic type. Anything that produces hypoxia in the tissue, shock, ischemia that can be local in the tissue, for example, mesenteric ischemia, people with respiratory failure, hypoxemia, people with uh, carbon monoxide poisoning. Okay, simply there is carbon monoxide poisoning, the hemoglobin doesn't want to release the oxygen. Okay, and when it reaches the lungs, it doesn't pick up more oxygen because of the presence of carbon monoxide. Now, lactate is, could be converted to glucose, but if there is a liver problem, liver failure, or simply the hypoperfusion also affecting the kidney, the, the liver, the liver is not going to do anything okay, with the lactate or with anything else. Then we have the type B, that is a problem when there is a and the mitochondria has have problems, okay, impaired oxygen utilization, maybe because of the presence of toxins, ethanol, methanol, ethylene glycol, cyanide, isoniazide or metformin, or some metabolic causes, okay, diabetes, liver disease, kidney disease, thiamine deficiency, okay, and some other conditions. And we have a representation of this uh, biochemistry part that I was telling you before. Okay. For the production of ATP by the mitochondria, we need several things. We need nutrients and we need oxygen. 
Okay, nutrients can be fatty acids or can be some amino acids. Okay, glucose will enter the cells using the glucose transporter that in many cases has to be stimulated by insulin, the adipose tissue skeletal muscle. Okay, glucose, when it once it enters the cells in the glycolysis is going to produce pyruvate. Pyruvate may enter the mitochondria if there is oxygen or be converted to lactate and the liver can convert it back to glucose. Now, if this process here is not working, either because of the lack of oxygen or the lack of insulin, okay, different bad things may happen. Okay, we need to start using, for example, excess fatty acids to produce ATP, and that rapid breakdown of the fatty acids, fast fatty acids is going to produce ketones, Okay, and if there is a, no oxygen, then what will happen is that the mitochondria are not going to use the pyruvate and it's going to be converted to lactate. Lactic acid, lactic acidosis. Notice that there are things that may stimulate the breakdown of fatty acids. Okay, for example, glucagon, catecholamines, the breakdown of cortisol. Gonna be uh, of proteins is going to be stimulated by cortisol. Okay, this excess glucagon or excess catecholamines that will occur when there is no insulin, because even if we have very elevated blood sugar levels, our cells think we are starving. Okay, so we are going to produce lots of glucagon and catecholamines that will stimulate the very fast breakdown of fat, like policies. And that's what's going to produce the ketoacidosis as a result of the increase in these ketones. Now, how we treat patients with uh, metabolic acidosis? Well, it will depend on the cause. Okay, we have to address the cause. Okay, so, imagine you have a patient with diabetic ketoacidosis and we only give bicarbonate, intravenous bicarbonate. Just keep the pH. Yeah. Yeah. Huh? yeah, exactly. Like when we are cooking, it's too salty, put potatoes and more potatoes and more. And what if there is an internal mechanism producing more salt? So we have to stop that mechanism. So the use of bicarbonate is very controversial. Many people will tell you no. And one of the reasons is that it has sodium. Okay? And there is a lot of debate about this. The same for the use of Ringer lactate or use of normal saline. Okay, normally we reserve the use of bicarb. Okay, for severe cases, that we have to do something. We are not going to be with the arms crossed in front of the patient watching them die. So very low pH. Okay, and always remembering that it will lead to hypernatremia, hyperosmolality. Okay, volume overload, and we may worsen the intracellular acidosis. So we, make, we could make the situation worse. In case of lactic acidosis, we simply are going to correct the underlying cause. For example, in type A, improve perfusion. Okay, probably in improving the perfusion will correct everything else. Maybe we don't need to do anything at all for the acidosis. Just wait for the body okay, to reestablish the pH. There can be fluids, uh, packed red cells, vasopressors, inotropes, 
Now, about this fluid, for example, um, if you listen to people who have experience in this, about which fluid is better, uh, many people will agree that if you have to give a small amount of fluid, normal saline is okay. Okay, if you, are, you have to give uh, one liter of fluid, normal saline is okay. And for example, if you have to give more than that, then there are different options. Plasma life, that is very expensive, or lactated ringer. Okay, but lactated ringer is great because the lactate is going to be converted by the liver into bicarbonate. However, what if the person has liver failure? Then it's not going to be converted to anything. It's going to make worse the acidosis, the lactate. Okay, so if the patient has a normal functioning liver, Ringer's lactate is great. Okay, now, people with a risk for acute kidney injury, we give normal saline, okay, we are going to increase suddenly the delivery of sodium and chloride to the distal part of the nephron. Okay, there we have the macula densa that is going to try to stop the delivery of sodium and chloride and is going to produce okay, kidney vasoconstriction, a ferrin arterial vasoconstriction, so we may trigger acute kidney injury okay, in people who are at risk. It's very difficult to choose what is the type of fluid that we are going to give to these patients because there are many things to have in mind. But if, but if it's less than one liter, okay, normal saline is okay. Um, in the case of uh, type B, remember this is the toxic metabolic type remove the offending agent, okay, and supplement cofactors, thiamine, don't forget thiamine, okay, that is important to make the Krebs cycle to start working, doesn't matter how much, how much glucose and oxygen is there, if you don't have the thiamine or the cofactors that these uh, mitochondria need, nothing is going to work. In the case of diabetic ketoacidosis, insulin, okay, correct the insulin uh, and glucagon excess, then we have the starvation and alcoholic ketoacidosis. In that case, uh, important to stimulate endogenous insulin, okay, with dextrose-containing fluids. Remember, give thiamine in that case, too. And in the case of end-stage renal disease, these people need hemodialysis, okay? Someone whose kidney is not working, there is nothing that we are going to do with the fluids and with the medication. Okay, we can give alkali therapy, okay, sodium bicarbonate, citrate, and hemodialysis, depending on the value. Now, what about the normal anion gap? Okay. Remember I told you don't worry too much about the renal tubular acidosis. I put it there because I didn't want to leave this incomplete. Okay, but for us, we are going to focus only on the diarrhea part. Now, how we know what the patients have? Well, remember, they uh, are using bicarbonate, so they don't have any pro problem in the kidney. Notice that this is an ideal patient, uh, because people with chronic kidney disease also get diarrhea, right? No? This is the, the, the part of medicine, uh, or studying medicine, that sometimes uh, is funny, no? Someone has a GI loss of bicarbonate because of diarrhea, and they don't have any renal defect. And we assume that. 
what if they do? Then we have to consult nephrology, right? So we learn up to here. Okay, they are gonna have a low serum uh, potassium, okay? The urinary pH is gonna be low because they don't have any problem in the kidney, they are eliminating the excess acid there. Okay, since they don't have any problem in the kidney, they are gonna have an increased amount of things that we call, call titratable acids, okay, like ammonium chloride, okay, like uh, phosphates, etc. that are titrating or buffering the hydrogen there. And this is one of the causes of negative uh, 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 anion gap in the blood, serum anion gap. And if you calculate the urinary anion gap, that is exactly calculated in the same way, but with the urinary values, okay, it's gonna be negative. Okay, and we simply treat the diarrhea with replacing the fluids and the electrolytes, sodium chloride, bicarbonate, okay. Now, if you one day need to do or know how to do the differential diagnosis of a non-anion gap metabolic acidosis, notice what is useful, the urinary anion gap. Okay, it's gonna be negative in diarrhea, okay, extra renal losses, and it's gonna be positive in the cases of renal tubular acidosis that I don't know if one day you will need. And then what else you do with that? Well, simply remember that they, there are three types. Okay, the one is distal, the first type is distal, the second is proximal. So there is a problem in the distal nephron, proximal tubule. And the last one, the fourth, is called hyporeninemic, hypoaldosteronism, low renin, low aldosterone. Okay, the, there is a type three that nobody ever mentioned because nobody has seen it. And the distal has a problem uh, with the distal acid secretion. Okay, so we're gonna have a very low pH in the urine. Okay, and it's treated with simply bicarbonate, that is oral bicarb, very little. The proximal, okay, has a problem with the proximal bicarbonate reabsorption. In that case, we have to give alkali therapy but a lot. Instead of one to three milliequivalents, 10 to 15, why? Because they are gonna eliminate. Okay, we give a lot, so they retain at least a little bit. Okay, the one to three that the people with distal acidosis normally retain. Okay, and also thiazides. And then this one is the one that is easy to, to diagnose because it's the only one that has elevated potassium because it has hypoaldosterone, hypoaldosteronism. That's that the potassium is low in the serum in all of them, except in the type four. And in that case, we have to substitute the aldosterone that the patient doesn't have. Okay, mineralocorticoids, potassium restriction, okay, furosemide, and bicarbonate. Notice that you are targeting all the things that the patients have. They don't have aldosterone, give fluidocortisone. They have acidosis, give sodium bicarbonate. They have excess potassium. You have to restrict potassium and give them diuretics. Okay, starting like that and making sense of everything. Okay, it's uh, a great idea. 
There is uh, how you calculate the uh, anion gap in the urine. Okay. Sodium plus potassium minus chloride. Okay, can be negative or positive to differentiate between GI and renal causes of non-anion gap acidosis. Okay, there is there is only one in which this is negative. Okay, that is the the diarrheas. Negative. I should say positive. But we are not going to worry about the renal tubular acidosis. And what is the management? Okay, the management, uh, well, we already mentioned alkali in the renal tubular acidosis. Okay, there you have the different types, but you don't need to study this. It's in the, in the table. And about metabolic alkalosis, there is only one thing that you need to focus on. Okay, the diagnosis is easy. Okay, you have the pH. And the only thing that we have to focus on is, for the treatment, is if they are chloride responsive, okay, or chloride unresponsive. That means if they are going to respond to fluid therapy. We administer fluids. Are, is the metabolic imbalance going to improve or not? And for that, uh, let me see if there is anything important here. There are no signs and symptoms clinically. Severe cases may have hypopnea, but that is not something that you see at all. Remember, alkalinia is a complicated problem because it shifts the hemoglobin dissociation curve towards the loading, towards the left. So it doesn't want to release the oxygen. Okay, they are going to have some findings because of the hypokalemia, not, not exactly because of the alkalosis. Okay, yeah, they have low potassium, chloride. And we have to measure the urine chloride to differentiate the treatment or the, the, the etiology, and if they are going to respond to uh, normal saline therapy. For example, low chloride in the urine, they are going to be chloride responsive. You see chloride responsive, responsive is saline responsive, fluid responsive, or unresponsive when the chloride in the urine is elevated. So there you have some of the causes, okay? And we are more interested in the chloride responsive, the one that has low chloride in the urine. Okay, this can be uh, as a result of excessive body bicarbonate content, or can be found also when there is a normal bicarbonate content. Okay, excessive body bicarbonate is, for example, renal alkalosis diuretic therapy after the effect of the diuretic has stopped. Or different types of GI losses, for example, vomiting, nasogastric suctioning, increase intake of baking soda, sodium chloride. Okay, those that appear in bold letters are the most important. And what is this about the normal body bicarbonate content? Something called contraction alkalosis. Okay, someone takes diuretics and they lose excess fluid, 
Okay, so now we have an increased concentration of bicarbonate in the blood. That's why the pH gives us elevated. But there is a normal content. Okay, we simply have to reestablish the fluid. So we dilute the bicarbonate, and now we have a normal pH. When there is a chloride unresponsive, so the chloride is going to be elevated in the urine, only we have cases of excessive bicarbonate content. The patient may be normotensive or hypertensive. Okay, notice that uh, causes are severe potassium depletion, refeeding alkalosis, hypercalcemia, hypoparathyroidism. Okay, we don't have anything here that we as primary care providers are going to treat. And also different endocrine disorders, primary aldosteronism, hyperreminism, different uh, these two examples of congenital adrenal hyperplasia. And so these are things that are for simply consultation, referral. If they are chloride responsive, we can treat them. Okay, as you see there, vomiting, intake of sodium chloride, okay, after the effect of the diuretic stopped. Notice that also we have their transfusions. Okay, but there have to be massive transfusions more than eight units of blood, okay, not because someone got two units of blood, they are going to develop this. Because the citrate that is contained in the, in the transfusions is converted to bicarbonate. This is the algorithm. Notice that here, okay, we have the chloride responsive, okay, past diuretic therapy, or gastric losses, this is the part that we are interested in. Okay, when we have the chloride all responsive, then we look at the blood pressure. Okay, if the blood pressure is normal or low, ongoing diuretic therapy, hypokalemia, hypomagnesemia. If there is hypertension, then we have to look at the renin. If low, is high. Okay, if the renin is low, then we look at aldosterone is low or is high, that is that. This is a very similar to what we saw before, okay, in the cases of uh, when we were looking at the sodium, potassium, etc. Low aldosterone is typically Cushing syndrome or glycolis, high in aldos, uh, adrenal adenoma, not adenoma, and adrenal hyperplasia. Okay, renin is high in renal artery stenosis. It's exactly the same thing that we saw okay, in hypokalemia, for example. But now, from the point of view of the acid-base balance. And the management, well, if it's uh, chloride unresponsive, simply treat the underlying cause or uh, dialysis, because they're not going to respond to anything. And if it is chloride responsive, uh, remember that severe or symptomatic alkalosis is going to be when the pH goes above 7.6. Okay, mild levels are well tolerated. So we are going to treat the cause, the diarrhea, the, sorry, the vomiting, the suction. Okay, we can, for example, uh, things that reduce the gastric acidity, PPI, stop diuretics, remove an external source of alkali, treat things that impair uh, bicarbonate excretion, like volume status, okay, or different electrolyte disorders, kidney function. 
and will expand only with normal sign until they become evolumic. Okay, that will increase the delivery of chloride to the distal nephron, and that will increase the reabsorption of chloride in exchange for bicarb. You put more chloride, chloride goes to the blood, bicarb goes out, anion for anion. Okay, and also decreases the bicarbonate reabsorption at the level of the proximal tubule. There is more fluid, the fluid travels faster, so we reabsorb less. If the fluid is traveling very slowly, we reabsorb lots of bicarb. So we make it travel fast, and when chloride gets to the end, goes inside, and bicarbonate goes out. That is the first line there. If they have volume overload, okay, for example, heart failure, we are not gonna use fluids to a patient that, person that has congestive heart failure. In that case, we can use acetazolamide, okay, to increase the bicarb excretion, correct the potassium, of course, and if there is a severe pH, more than 7.5, or bicarb is more than 15 in the equivalence, then we may use even hydrochloric acid IV, or ammonium chloride, that is going to be metabolized to urea and hydrochloric acid. Okay, very severe cases. And that's it. Got it. Okay. And I don't think we have to meet tomorrow. Okay. You're welcome. You're welcome, welcome. Oh.